Wow. <laughs> Catherine and Julie, thank you so much. Uh, that was just, like, amazing. <laughs> so, I'll tell you, um, I don't know what else to say. That's just great. <laughs> it is just um, spectacular. I can't, all the adjectives, are they're all there. So, uh, we're, we're continuing forward uh, with our... Um, with our series entitled The Riches of the Risen Life. And uh, as we move forward this morning, we're looking at rising above uh, a spirit that tends to permeate throughout our culture, rising above cynicism. And uh, I think some of the, I'm gonna refer to what um, Heather read a little bit earlier, as, uh, one of the verses out of the Ecclesiastes. But before I do that, I wanna also read from 1 Corinthians, the first chapter, <coughs> pardon me, <coughs> Um, verses um, 18 and then uh, 23 and 24. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For Jews demand signs and Greeks desire wisdom, but we proclaim Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews, foolishness to the Gentiles, but to those who are called both Jews and Gentiles, Christ is the power of God. Christ is the wisdom of God. Cross, foolishness to those who are perishing, but to all of us who are being saved, it's the power of God. It is the wisdom of God. I believe it is God's answer to where Ecclesiastes found himself as he looked at the world and said, vanity of vanity, all is vanity. And so in that thought, I invite us to, to join our hearts together as we come into the message this morning. Gracious God, we always give you thanks for a beautiful day, and we thank you for the beauty of your word. We thank you for the power of truth it holds for our lives and for the ways that it leads us in, in the pathway of Christ, for the ways that it lifts our hearts into your hope for the ways that it challenges us to, to live as those people who would not only have that hope in our hearts, but let it give strength to our hands so that we might serve your world with joy. So, Lord, we ask that you be at work in each of our lives in this day in ways that this time of worship might again lead us into a time of working in your kingdom and let it be all to your glory in and through Christ in whose name we pray. Amen. I want to tell your friends, cynicism has been around a long time. You know, depending on how you date Ecclesiastes, and I'm not going to try to do that this morning, but if you look at the very, very traditional dating of Ecclesiastes, uh, it goes back, they think this, you know, Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes, uh, supposedly, and, and that goes back to like 1,000 B.C., kind of give or take a couple hundred years, not going to quibble about all that, but that's just to say that cynicism had, was raised to an art form that far back. You know, and in 1000 BC, cynicism was already really pretty refined. And, and uh, so it's been around and with us a long time. 
And as we start out the message this morning, what I want to do is kind of, you know, reframe for you in my own words what I hear, uh, the words that Heather read and the words that the teacher brings forward, because uh, that's what the writer uh, calls himself in those first uh, verses or in the book of Ecclesiastes. He calls himself the teacher. And so what I'd like to do is kind of reframe that, uh, kind of, you know, kind of modernize it maybe a little bit, but kind of, kind of bring us into the spirit of those words because as he writes the words, he says, I'm the teacher. And what that means is he knows something. He knows something, he says, about life and about the nature of life and about what's really going on in life. And when he kind of summarizes all of that, he summarizes it in one word, vanity. And by vanity, it's not really the way that we look at vanity in terms of kind of how we think of people kind of stuck up on themselves. Vanity in the Hebrew is more like, it's like a mist. It's like an emptiness. And so he says, no, really, when you look at life, it's all smoke and mirrors. It's all just this vapor. And what happens is the wind comes and blows it away, and then and there's nothing to it. There's just nothing to life. It's just vanity. And he says, you know, vanity, vanity, all is vanity, vanity. You know, he does the vanity thing three times as if to kind of underscore, underscore, underscore that this is the nature of life. He says you just work all your life. You work your fingers to the bone. You just kind of invest your life in, in, in doing what you think is the right thing to do. He says when you get to the end of all that, what do you have? Nothing. Vanity, mist, vapor, smoke, mirrors. You know, he says, that's what it all is all about. He says, you know, people come and people go and they invest their whole lives like that. And when you look at what difference do they make? Zero. None. It says, you look at the way nature works. Well, hey, the sun comes up in the morning, goes, you know, it's a business during the day, goes across the sky, shines its blessings on everyone, goes down to bed at sunset, kind of scurries around the other side of the world so it can get up in the morning and do it again and do it again and do it again. And he says, what difference does that make? None. The wind blows here and there and here and there and here and there, and just all the wind does is just kind of blow around. That's, that's all it does, just runs the circuit. He says the rivers, they run to the sea and they run to the sea and they run to the sea. Does the sea ever fill up? No, <laughs> it doesn't. He says, you know what? Just makes me tired. He says, there is a great weariness in the whole thing. There is a great weariness in life. It burdens my soul. He says, I look at my life. I look at life. And life is boring. My own life bores me. You know, there's nothing new that I see. There's nothing new that I hear. There is nothing new under the sun, and that is the f one of the famous lines from Ecclesiastes. There is nothing new under the sun. You know, somebody might say, oh, here's something new, or there's something new, and when you go to look at it, you know what you find? It's a knockoff. Nothing's new. It's just a knockoff. And that people, you know, what they do is they, the, the generation comes along and, hey, they're going to change the world and they're going to do something great and they're going to make a difference. 
and they don't, and they're forgotten. At the next generation, it comes along, it has the same heart, it has the same spirit, it engages in that same world, and you know what? They are forgotten also. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. I am the teacher. I know. That's how Ecclesiastes starts out. I tell you, if I got up and drank that with my coffee for breakfast, I would not be a happy person. <laughs> I don't know about you. I can't imagine engaging every day with, you know, kind of having that heart and having that spirit and say, well, that's the way, that's my approach to the world. That's my attitude. But I want to let you know there are people where that is their attitude that that spirit does kind of permeate around in, in terms of, of life. There are times in life where we can all get to that place where this does not matter, where I cannot make any difference. Nothing I do will ever change anything. You know, you can get to that place. I mean, cynicism is, is universal, and that's why Ecclesiastes is one of the most popular books of the Bible, not only among people of faith, but also among people who don't have faith, because it describes for so many people the condition of life. And what's really interesting to me is that that's not where people start out. Nobody starts out wanting to be a cynic, <laughs> you know? What happens is nobody writes in their high school yearbook Hey, I want to be the world's greatest cynic. Nobody does that. Everybody writes, well, I'm, you know, this is the person that's going to, you know, cure cancer, and this is the person that's going to be the most wild success in doing this, or this person is going to write the greatest, you know, opera or, you know, whatever. I mean, you, you think about, you know, where people start out. And you think about that freshness, and you think about that vitality. I tell you, I'm privileged to be on the board of ministry, which interviews candidates who are coming into the ministry, all the atoms of the universe as they come in. And it is just so encouraging to see the fresh spirit that they bring into the life of the church, the idealism, the enthusiasm. I mean, it is an incredible blessing to see what these young people bring into the life of the church. And the church is not unusual in that regards. I think about uh, school teachers. I have a, um, a daughter-in-law who was a school teacher. I can think back when she graduated from North Texas, and she and all her classmates were coming along, and man, they were going to engage the school systems and, and teach all those children and, and bring that blessing to, to all those kids. And I can remember, you know, being with them in that graduation, how exciting that was. And I have friends who are physicians, and when they came out of med school, you know what? They were going to bring healing to a hurting world, and friends who are attorneys. And when they came out of law school, what they were going to do is set some things right in the world that needed to be set right in terms of justice and fairness. And even politicians. I don't want to badmouth politicians, you know, but sometimes they get a, sometimes that happens, you know. Yeah, if you read the paper this morning, about one of the candidates who's running for the mayoral position in Dallas. And it was so great. It's, you know, I've grown up in Dallas. I love this city. I want to serve this city. I thought, man, this is fantastic, you know, to have somebody that brings that attitude, that heart to, to that responsibility. And you see all that. And you experience that. 
And then you ask yourself the question, in five years, where will that be? 10 years, where will that be? 20 years, where will that be? Where will that spirit be in their hearts and their, and their lives? Where will those people be? And you know that they won't be at the same place. And you know that and I know that. Because what happens when I look at kind of how life works, and maybe you see it too, I see kind of a general kind of devolution in things. And what I mean by that is people start out, they, they're running out into the world to, to challenge the world and to change the world, and, and that is great. And what happens when you do that is you run right into the world. <laughs> you run headlong into the world, into the systems and into the structures and into the people that populate those systems and that structures that kind of like the way those systems and structures are. The status quo is for real, you know, and the inertia is there big time. The inertia is kind of, you know, these are the way things are. And so what happens is the idealist, as they run into the world, becomes a realist and starts to say, hey, I begin to see how this all works. I begin to see how life really is. And so they begin to call themselves, you know, again, a, a realist. And then as they look at life a little bit more as, as time goes on, what they begin to see about the systems and the structures is that so often they're rigged. So often what happens is that there are winners and losers and that is built into the system. And as those, those pockets of power and privilege are built into the system, what begins to happen, again, some people win and some people lose. And what you begin to see is that there is injustice to the poor. And what you begin to see is that there are crooked politicians. And what you begin to see is that there are guilty who commit crimes, who continue to commit crimes. And what you begin to see is that there's rampant materialism that continues to morph in degree that drives so much. And if you think that those things that I just named, those four things come out of the headlines, which they do, they also come out of verses in Ecclesiastes. <laughs> they date back 3,000 years in terms of that observation on life. And so when people begin to get to that place, what they say is, you know what? Life is not what I thought it was gonna be. And the hopes that I had, they are never gonna happen. And the dreams that I have, they're gonna have to die. And so people then, when they start to get to that place, they go from idealism to realism to cynicism. Cynicism for me is a way that people protect themselves. I think what happens in cynicism is that there is a pain for having the dreams of your life and the visions of your life and the hope of your heart. There's a, there's a pain that happens when you feel that you have to let them go to be able to, to kind of be part of what is going on. And so to, to people to protect themselves from that pain what they do is they engage in a projection. And what they do is they take the pain and disappointment from their past and they project it into the future. And as they project it into the future, they project it on other people around them. 
And so the way that a cynic's mind begins to work and the way that the rationale flows is like this, I'm not going to risk a relationship with you because I know if I enter into a relationship with you, there's going to come a time during the course of that relationship where you are going to let me down, where I am going to need you, and you are not going to be there for me because that's the way it is. I'm not going to run that risk. And the cynic does not step up into opportunities for generosity because what they do is they look at those opportunities and they say, you know what, I know that organizations are not good stewards of the resources that are entrusted to them and that some of those organizations are even a sham. And since they're not good stewards and some of them are a sham, you know what, I'm not going to invest what I've got into those opportunities in any of the opportunities. They shut it down. And what a cynic does is looks at life and says, you know what? I'm not going to invest my energy and my time and my efforts to make the world a better place because the systems and the structures are all already set and not going to change. That's what a cynic does. Kind of has that kind of rationale about looking at life that protects them so they don't have to get engaged, so they don't have to be involved. And they isolate themselves, and you can already see there's a problem with that. You can already see there's a poison in that. You can see that cynicism is a cyanide to the spirit, and it is. And the problem is this, that just because we decide to retreat from life, we decide to withdraw from life, we decide I'm not going to risk and I'm not going to trust. That does not stop life from going on. Life continues to go forward. And as life continues to go forward, the only person that's getting hurt in this scenario is the cynic because life goes on. You know, the opportunities are there, but they've taken themselves out of the equation. And so you see that, and you see the problem with that. And what the life lesson that I think is to be learned out of all of that takes courage to risk hope. It takes courage to hope. It takes courage to rise above cynicism. I tell you, friends, hope and trust are risks. You know, you can't be disappointed when you hope. You can't be betrayed when you trust. And visions, yes, they do make you vulnerable because you can enter into them and you can find out they are not going to materialize. But just because those risks are there, that does not mean we should not engage in them. That does not mean we should not enter into those places with the courage that is given to us by the cross of Jesus Christ. Because here's what happens with that cross. A cynic looks at the cross and says, the cross is foolishness. It is foolishness. A cynic looks at the cross and says, I could have told Jesus, if you trust those 12 redneck fishermen, they will run when the time comes. They will let you down when the tough stuff comes. They will go. I could have told you that. I could have told you that there's a mole in your organization who will sell you out for money. 
I could have told you that, 30 pieces of silver, right? You know, that's the way it is in every organization. You know, I could have told you that's the way it's going to be. I could have told you that if you go into the temple week in and week out and you talk about the kingdom and you take on the authorities, I could have told you it's going to cause trouble. That's what the cynic says about the cross. And then people of faith, here's what we say about the cross. It is the power of God. It is the wisdom of God. It is the place where Jesus comes along and he takes the risk to hope. He risks rejection. He risks ridicule. He risks the cross so that he can restore, he can reconcile you and I to himself that it can restore you and me to the gift of life that God would give to us in his love. That's why Jesus runs that risk of the cross. And Jesus on the cross counts the cost of the kingdom because the kingdom does have a cost. And he pays that price so that you can I and I can know that that is our inheritance and that is our blessing because he opens that up to you and to me. And at the cross, Jesus gives us life so you and I have, we can receive the gift of life. The cross is the power of God. The cross is the wisdom of God. And so when we come to those places in our lives where cynicism is, is creeping in, where we don't think anything can make a difference, where we say, you know, I am giving up this burdens my soul when you find yourself at that place what we do is we come and we cling to the cross we cling to that place where Jesus had the courage to hope and we find in the cross our courage to hope as a gift from God to you and to me not in and of ourselves but what God would give us in his son in and through our faith in ways that as we find ourselves in that place in faith what is embodied in Christ is embedded in you and in me. And we find the courage to risk, to trust, to hope, to rise above cynicism. I tell you, friends, I love communion. We're going to engage in here in just a little bit. And to me, it's such a blessing to come to the, to the rail and to kneel because when you and I come to the rail to kneel, that's where you and I can come to God and get real. You know, you kneel and you get real. You get real with God about what's going on in your life, about what's happening, about where you need help, where you need hope. You just lay it all out. That's part of what happens. And then as we lay it all out at that place, we receive the bread, which is the brokenness of Christ that makes us whole. We receive the blood, which is where he pours out his life so that it might be poured into us. And we receive that so that as we rise from this, the rail, we can rise as people say, you know, in the cross, that's where I find my courage in the cross. That's where I find my hope. I love our closing hymn because it goes like this. Ask ye. Ask ye what great thing I know that delights and stirs me so. 
What's the high reward I win? Who's the name I glory in? Jesus Christ, the crucified. He is life and life to me. He the death of death will be. He will place me on his right with the counts, with the host of light. Jesus Christ, the crucified. We celebrate that when we look at life, it is not vanity of vanity. All is vanity. It is, ask me what great thing I know. I tell you, friends, here is what you know. Here is what I know, that the cross is the power of God, that the cross is the wisdom of God. And in that wisdom and in that power, we have the courage to hope and we find the love of God to rise above cynicism, to embrace life as a gift from God. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, let us pray together. Gracious God, we give you thanks that we can come into our time of communion now to receive the blessing of hope that you would give by the power of your cross that we might rise to the richness of life that you have for us in your Son and that we might live in that richness, in that fullness as a blessing for all those around us in and through Jesus Christ in whose name we've come, we worship, we commune, and we pray. Amen. Dear friends, as we come into communion this morning, it is not a Methodist table, a Spring Valley table. It's a table of our Lord and Savior, inviting all of us to come and feast upon the bounty of God's grace. As you come this morning, if you would want to receive the elements gluten-free, please let your server know, and we'll be glad to um, provide that for you this morning. And so let's join our hearts uh, together as we come to the table. And those who are assisting, if you would come forward at this time. Dear friends, the Lord be with you and also with you. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right to give our thanks and to praise. It is right and a good and joyful thing always and everywhere to give thanks to you, Father, almighty creator of heaven and earth, for you formed us in your image and you breathed into us the breath of life. And when we turned away and our love failed, your love remained steadfast. You delivered us from captivity, made covenant to be our sovereign God, brought us to a land that is flowing with milk and honey, your love and your hope, and you set before us a way of life in Jesus Christ. And so with your people on earth and all the company of heaven, we join in the unending hymn, Holy, Holy, Holy Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Holy are you and blessed is your son, Jesus Christ. By the suffering of his baptism, um, death, suffering death and resurrection, you gave birth to your church. Deliver us from slavery to sin and death and made with us a new covenant by water and the spirit. By your great mercy, we have been born anew to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and to an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled and unfading. Once we were no people, but now you are God's 
people, declaring the wonderful deeds of Christ who calls us out of darkness and into God's marvelous light. And when Jesus ascended, he promised to be with us always by the power of the Word and the Holy Spirit. And we remember that as we think together again and we remember how on the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread and after giving thanks and blessing the bread, he broke it. And he gave it to those who followed him and he said, take and eat, this is my body which is broken for you. And likewise, after supper, he took the cup and after giving thanks, he gave it to them and said, take and drink for this is the cup of the new covenant poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you shall drink in remembrance of me. Let us pray together. Oh, Lord God, holy, pour out your Holy Spirit on us gathered here and on these gifts of the bread and the cup. Make them be for us the body and the blood of Christ, that we may be for the world the body of Christ, redeemed by his blood. By your Spirit, make us one with Christ, one with each other, and one in ministry to all the world until Christ comes in final victory and we feast at his heavenly banquet. Through your Son, Jesus Christ, with the Holy Spirit and your holy church, all honor and glory is yours, Father Almighty, now and forever. And now with the confidence of the children of God, let us join together in praying the prayer that our Lord taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.